This episode brought to you by Manscaped. Use code REVISITED for 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. This is 80s Revisited. I'm your producer, Jesse Sedgley. And now, your host, Trey Harris. On December 16, 1966, Diane Fossey left a life of comfort and privilege and went alone into the mountains of Africa. Sounds believable. She was determined to make contact with the wild mountain gorillas and save them from extinction. Someone wanted her stopped. Who wanted her stopped? Find out tonight on 80s Unsolved Revisited Mysteries here on NBC. Welcome back, everybody, to the latest and greatest blast of the past with this podcast, mm-hmm. 80s Revisited. It's me, your gorilla in the mist, Trey Harris, and the Miss to my gorilla, my personal podcasting gorilla mist. I don't know where I'm going with this. Regardless, it's Jesse Sedgley. Yes, I am. And did you guess it? All the hints I gave last week, Women's Month, Forest Day, or whatever it was, and I forgot the other one. Monkey Day, I can't remember. Gorillas in the Mist, everybody. The biopic, or biopic, however you want to pronounce it, about the late, and some people say great, some people have a different opinion about Diane Fossey. But nevertheless, about her story, based on her book, also called Gorillas in the Mist. And uh, because we're kind of celebrating, a, this is a, a real-life uh, biopic, as I mentioned. We will talk about the real-life stuff at the end, like we like to do. Uh, but in some ways, after watching it and researching this, this might not have been the best woman to talk about for International Women's Month <laughs> to celebrate. So we'll, but we'll get into that controversy much later. Let's talk about the movie first. Uh, again, Gorillas in the Mist, released September 30th, 1988. Uh, it did release one week earlier in a limited release, but we're going to go with 30th as the actual wide release date for intents, all intents and purposes on this podcast. Uh, IMDb gives it a 7. Rotten Tomatoes, 84% critics, 74% audience, which I'll be honest with you, all these ratings I think are a little too high, but we'll talk about mm. that a little bit later as well. The budget was $22 million, estimated, of course, It opened with 3.4, which was good enough to make it the number one movie of the week. Uh, Die Hard was number five in its 12th week. And Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, was number seven, unfortunately, in its first week of release, which we talked about uh, way back several years ago for Halloween uh, on the podcast. And as another note, Roger Rabbit rounded out the top 10 at number nine that week in its 15th week, because... Remember when movies stayed at theaters for what seemed like forever? <laughs> Back in the 80s and, of course, into the 90s and early 2000s, of course. Now it's, you know, oh, it's like Shazam. Like, it was a box office bomb, so... it's uh, Yeah, it's going to stream next month. So now you just kill it all, all box off... All, all the rest of the box office for it by saying that. Because uh, apparently the, they're attributing it to Dwayne Johnson's ego. But uh, this is not the Rock Podcast... Mm-hmm. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, it was the uh, Gorillas in the Mist, though, was direct. Uh, I'm sorry, no, uh, domestically would go on to gross 24.7, worldwide around out at 61.1. So made, you know, tripled its budget in terms of worldwide revenue, but obviously we didn't get a sequel because Diane Fossey 
uh, spoiler alert for the movie, dies at the end. Uh, but it was directed by Michael Apted. He also did Cold Miner's Daughter, another biopic uh, about, uh, what's her name? Uh, country, uh, Loretta Lynn. Uh, Thunderheart, starring our favorite 80s actor, one of our favorite 80s actors, Val Kilmer. And arguably he directed the worst Bond film, The World Is Not Enough. That's the one uh, with uh, Sophie Marceau and, uh, oh, what's her name from Starship Troopers? Uh, not Diane. Uh, oh, Denise, Denise Richards. <laughs> It's Christmas right. Jones. <laughs> oh God, that movie! Like Bro- Brosnan, Pr- Pierce Brosnan is the Kane Hodder of the Bond franchise because he's the, in my opinion, he's the best Bond. But he was in, aside from Goldeneye, Goldeneye is my favorite Bond film. He was in my favorite Bond film, but it, then every other one was terrible <laughs> as far as Bond films go. <laughs> like so bad they had to reboot it with Craig. Like straight up. Casino Royale, we have to reboot it after uh, Die Another Day. Although, honestly, I like Die Another Day. <laughs> but World Is Not Enough was not... That was... I was even, even I couldn't... I can't say anything too good about it. <laughs> about that one. Really bad. Although, I, can say, I can't say something good. Brosnan was great in it. Oh, and uh, Robert Carlyle was a good villain. Everything else about it, unfortunately, it was just terrible. But uh, we'll talk about Bond on the podcast in a couple of months, because I am... In the chronology of Bond, I am close to finishing the 80s one, so we can actually cover them on the podcast, as promised, many moons ago. But yeah, uh, it was written by Anna Hamilton Phelan. She did the screenplay. She also did the screenplay for Mask and Girl Interrupted. And by Mask, I mean the Mask with Shea, not the Jim Carrey smoking Mask movie. <laughs> Uh, and it, it, this is also based on Diane's book and a couple of other things, but I'm just mentioning in terms of writing, we're going to just acknowledge who wrote the screenplay because there were a lot of names. Uh, cinematography was by John Seal. Now, he's done some great... Cinema, cinematography in this movie cannot be disputed. It is beautiful. It is gorgeous. It was filmed on location. More on that in a bit. Uh, but he also did Rain Man, Dead Poets Society, uh, City of Angels with Nicolas Cage, uh, Harry Potter, the first one, and... Proof that he is an amazing cinematographer. He was a cinematographer for Mad Max Fury Road, the greatest film made oh. in the past 20 years, uh, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Uh, at least my favorite. It might not be the best, but it's definitely my favorite film in the past 20 years. Uh, special effects were by legendary uh, special effect maestro Rick Baker. Of course, he won the very first Oscar for makeup effects with his work with an American Werewolf in London. He also did Men in Black, Videodrome. He did the special effects, the makeup effects for Thriller, Starman, and Harry and the Hendersons. Big, big name. In in terms of special effects, he's like the Spielberg of practical effects. Uh, And if not, he's, I mean, you know, Rick Baker, Stan Winston, uh, uh, Rob Botin, those are like to me, and Greg, Greg Nicotero now. He, he got his start in the 80s, but you know he, now he's the big name. But I mean, Winston, uh, Baker, and Botten, or Botin, however you pronounce his last name, were, were the big names in the 80s. You know, The Thing, Terminator, American Werewolf in London. Uh, so you have good effects in it. Uh, although, <laughs> as good as they are, you can absolutely tell when it's a real gorilla and a man in a suit. Uh, mainly in the close-ups. From a distance, it's pretty damn good. Uh, the music was by Maurice Jarre, 177 credits, legendary composer. However, I cannot tell you, I cannot hum any of his themes. I, I, I was like, I know, I've heard the name when I was redoing the, the who, what, when, where for the film, but 
but I can't, I, offhand, I cannot name a single thing that he's composed. But he did Ghost, mm. Lawrence of Arabia, and Mad Max Connection, but he did Beyond Thunderdome. So, uh, now Lawrence of Arabia's well-known, famous film, I honestly, I've only seen it once. I can't recall the score. I recall the cinematography. Uh, Ghost, obviously Ghost is amazing. But let's be honest, when you think of Ghost and, mu and music, you think of Unchained Melody. Nobody's thinking of the score for that film. Uh, although, next time I watch it, I will be paying attention. But the score in this film, it's forgettable. Even though I believe he won an Oscar for it. Uh, strangely enough. And starring is Diane Fossey. Uh, the legendary, the lovely Sigourney Weaver, of course, Ghostbusters, Working Girl, most recently Avatar, but in my opinion, most notably, action star extraordinaire Ellen Ripley in the Alien franchise. Uh, rounding out the supporting mm -hmm. cast, we have Brian Brown as Bob. He was in FX and Cocktail with a certain top gun named Tom Cruise. And in my opinion, our, our, the second best actor in the movie next to Sigourney Weaver, John Omira Mawui. Um, I'm probably totally mispronouncing his name, and I apologize. That's Simbaga. And I was shocked. I was like, he looks so familiar. Like, I feel like I've seen him in something else. This was his only role. And he was so natural at it. It could have just been right role, right actor. Uh, but I was really shocked this was the only film that he ever starred in. Uh, Julie Harris was Roz. She was in the original Haunting from 1963, so you got horror royalty in the movie. And if you're sharp-eyed, Ian Glenn is one of the exchange students or one of the students that comes at the end near the end of the film named Brendan. But he was in Kick-Ass 2, Tomb Raider. But most notably, he was Jorah Mormont in Game of Thrones, the true person who uh, Khaleesi should have ended up with, not Jon Snow. He loved her more than he ever did. You know, so one of my favorite characters from the show, him and Bronn were my two favorite characters, and thankfully one of them lived. Uh, but yeah, it was, I'm like, this dude looks so familiar, and I, it so young, because again, this is 86, 88, excuse me, so young, and then like, you know, so used to him seeing him in armor and Game of Thrones. Uh, but like, when, once I saw like, oh my God, like, then, you, then you see it, and then you can't unsee it, huh. kind of thing. But yeah, Gorilla's in the Mist. Uh, as a kid, I wanted to see this movie because just because of Sigourney Weaver, because I loved her in Ghostbusters. I thought she was gorgeous. Still very beautiful. I think she's a very beautiful woman, personally. Uh, so I saw it as a kid and just didn't like it at all. I was like, okay, okay. And, I don't, you know, and honestly, this is not a kid's movie. Like, you know, an eight-year-old should not watch this movie. There's nothing to gain from it. Uh, it's, a, it's, right. it's over their head. The subject matter and the controversy, which we'll get into later about the real life Diane Fossey, which they do, they do a pretty good job of showing it in this film, but not, not so much to where they make it any kind of detraction from her character and who she really was. But as a movie, this movie starts off strong and very interesting about her, you know, her getting to Rwanda and conservation with gorillas, finding them, becoming assimilated, so to speak. And then it takes about a 30 to 40 minute detour with this love story out of nowhere, which completely knocks the train off the tracks. And then finally, when that part is over, the train, you know, they get the train back on the track and it keeps going. But that means it's uh, it's like an hour and 50 minute movie or two hour movie. It, it's really just an hour and 50, you know, the hour and 30 minute movie of the gorillas and Diane Fossey, what she really did was the best part. The love story is completely out of whack, not needed. There's no point in it. It does nothing except add runtime. And I'm assuming they were just trying to humanize her a little more as a person. Mm. And, all, and that is true. It is true that she had an affair with this guy there. 
But as far as the story goes, it does not, it really does nothing. There's no like, oh, a gorilla kills him or anything like, you know, there's no, it's just like, okay, I got to go. Bye. He's like, okay. Like it, it was not a big <laughs> part of her character in reality from the research I've done. I've not read the book. As far as I know, it's not even in the book because the book is about gorillas and her research on gorillas, whereas the movie is all about her life. And it is a, a story worth telling. Uh, it is equal parts inspirational and controversial, and there are things to be learned from it for sure. And honestly, most of those things are about how humans are terrible, and gorillas are <laughs> very noble and beautiful animals, and worthy of inspiration and protection. And they just spoil the end of the movie right there in the, in the end of that trailer. I didn't notice that till just now. <laughs> they li- that is literally the end of the movie. Like that is the last shot. Uh, but not the the exact last shot, but like that's the that's the big moment. But uh, yeah, so Jesse, have you ever seen Gorillas in the Mist? Nah, nah. You're not missing didn't anything. Watch it. Even it, though it's on HBO Max, I didn't watch it. There's no need to. the 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 documentary series about Diane Fossey on Disney Plus. If you have like the National Geographic, I think it's all included with the National Geographic pack and all that. I'm not sure how they Disney Plus has changed since they re. Uh, they introduced it to begin with, but they have a documentary series about Diane Fossey on Disney Plus. Skip the movie, watch that. That gives a very well-rounded, factual representation of her and what happened. Uh, you know, it, it's you have, it, it, like I said, you have an ins- you have the inspirational side of what she did to protect these gorillas, which I'm a, I, I'm fully I I grew up reading Ranger Rick and watching Steve Irwin. So I 100% believe in conservation. That part is completely noble. Uh, Her tactics with that are borderline racist and uh, Mm. uh, despicable. (coughs) Uh, But in her murder is is a mystery. You know, this is this story has everything. It's a very which is why because I watched the National Geographic series like oh I remember that movie as a kid. It's in the 80s. I'll do it on the podcast eventually. So it was, it was a hot, it was a quick go-to for me to like, and a reason to do it in March. And thankfully, we're, we're getting this out at the very end of March for Women's Month. Uh, although, again, <laughs> I probably should have picked a better one <laughs> in terms of the controversy around Diane Fossey. But it's an interesting story that a lot of people don't know because, and we'll get into that in the trivia, I mean, the, uh, the actual real life stuff in a bit. But yes, yeah, so if you haven't seen it, it's... The cinematography is beautiful. The the footage of gorillas is really, really impressive. But beyond that, aside from Weaver and um, Louise's performance, there's really not, not much here aside from that. Uh, so it's an easy skip. However, again, the story, I believe, is important. And for that, you got the, the documentary series on Nat Geo through, via Disney+, Plus, at least in America. Uh, so I highly recommend that as opposed to the movie. And again, the movie's not bad. It's just not very interesting because <laughs> it's all over the place. And it touches on a lot of historical things, which we'll actually talk about in a bit. And beyond that, you know, it's it never it never really has a cohesive feel to it as a lot of biopics do. You know, you watch Braveheart, which is completely false on <laughs> over half of its content, but it still has a narrative that that gets you pumped up. You know, Gladiator is not a biopic, but it it's, it is a historical drama that has a lot of fact and a ton of fiction. But it has a narrative there. Uh, Walk the Line, Johnny Cash, one of my favorite musicians. However, that movie just ends so abruptly. It's really not, it's just telling you. It's kind of just spitting facts at you. There's no like narrative, like a cohesive thing to take away from it. 
Uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, good, a really good biopic off the top of my head as a good example. Uh, Rocket Man. Mm. I thought Rocket Man was great. I thought it was better than Bohemian Rhapsody, personally. And I like Queen better than Elton John's music, but I thought the movie aspect of Rocket Man, to me, was much better and gave me more of a, a movie feel, which is what I wanted a biopic, uh, as opposed to uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, as a as a something that comes to mind. Yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody was directed by Brian Singer, though. So. Yeah, he's tra- he's he's right <laughs> under Landis, uh, if not right with him. Uh, not to detract from the performance of. Uh, oh my God, I can see yeah. his face. Hold on, I can Rami? see his face. Yeah, Rami Malek. See, ya. <laughs> I can see his face. I'm like, I know this guy. I know his name. Oh, we, the Weird Al Yankovic. The greatest biopic oh, ever yeah. made, you know, <laughs> because true. that, that, you know, honest, and I'm, I'm not saying that facetiously, to be honest, because what better way to explain who Weird Al Yankovic is than the way that movie did? Like, that is, that is legitimately like how Weird Al would tell his bio. It's incredible, you know, in, in, yeah. on so many levels. Uh, but other biopics, I'm just seeing which that I would rec- you know, say were good. 127 Hours, you know, that told a story and, delved into a lot of things about what happened to Aaron Ralston, I think was his name. Uh, Ed Wood. Ed Wood is a fantastic biopic because you handle somebody... Honestly, Tim Burton was the perfect choice to direct that because you have a care, a, per, a real-life person whose actual antics and every aesthetic was so Burton-esque, it was perfect for that. Uh, hmm. That that Chris, Kristen Stewart... Uh, Princess Diana movie garbage like I mean legit like one of the worst movies I've ever seen I don't understand that one uh, the, the, the recent Elvis movie I thought it was fantastic it, it gave a good you know and I know the historical Elvis uh, going into it but it, it told, I thought it told a good story I felt I felt it it you know it, it it recognized faults but also you know the greatness that was there but never forgetting one for the other um, I'm just looking at some of these other ones First Man I didn't care for it was beautiful, though. It was pretty beautiful. Uh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Speaking of beautiful, Beautiful Mind was a great biopic, although definitely a little glossier for uh, John Nash's life. You know, so bio, biopics are definitely uh, uh, tricky, very tricky uh, kind of film to make. Uh, you have some that do it good, like Schindler's List, for example. Even though, again, you know, you can't, you can never forget that Oscar Schindler was a Nazi. Like he, but but he wasn't. He wasn't the goose-stepping Nazi, if that makes sense. You know, I mean, he wasn't necessarily a good man, but he did a great thing. Uh, no disrespect to him. I mean, the movie is fantastic, and he, you know, he 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 genuinely helped people. I'm not discounting that, but you know, every time I watch the movie, I'm always like, oh yeah, he was he was a legit Nazi member of the Nazi Party. Uh, Straight Outta Compton was a really good biopic. They did gloss over some things, which again, it's typical because you're you're dealing with a me- the medium of film, trying to tell a story. Yeah. Like that, uh, the Mister Rogers one with Tom Hanks. I didn't. Li- I did not like that one at all. I was very disappointed personally with that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of eighties movies, Amadeus was a good biopic, although they really paint Salieri in a very bad light when he was him and Mozart were more so collaborators than enemies. To be true, and many people actually think Salieri is a better composer than Mozart historically these days. So you know, it's mm-hmm. again, it's, it's it's tricky. There are some good ones that we know are are totally fake. In terms of this, where they take the story, and there's some that are not, uh, that are also good, but then some that are not that are 
just not good. I would put this in the not good category. You know, if, if I was doing a top 10 biopic list, this Gorillas in the Mist would not be on it <laughs> at all. Uh, it's just, you know, there's really nothing, there's nothing really to gain too much from it that in a, with a two hour runtime, the National Geographic documentary series, I think is three 45 minute episodes. So it's roughly the same time investment. And one of them is 100% factual. And the other one is the Hollywood version. Now, of course, some people just prefer the Hollywood version, which is totally fine. But uh, for issues like this that are very complicated, as we'll get into at the end of the podcast, uh, it's best, I would say, stick with the documentary. In fact, every, anytime I, wa- I tend to watch a biopic or any movie based on true events, the second the movie's over, I go to the YouTube app and search... Uh, I'm just looking at the screen for a biopic on there. Uh, the uh, what was that Sandra Bullock movie? The The Blind Speed Side. Two. <laughs> <laughs> that was based on a true story, wasn't it? Uh, the Blind Side, or whatever you do. The Blind Side, fact versus fiction. And there's there's plenty of YouTube videos that will go through the movies. And there's there's a really good YouTube channel. I think it's called Oh shit. Uh, if you search just like like Braveheart or any historical movie, it's 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 a guy who has these animated intros, but he does exceptional videos about like the real life stuff based on uh, movies based on real events about breaking them down what's right what's correct Uh, I can't think of the name of it I can see it's like an animated intro and uh, it's uh, anyway just YouTube it you'll see what I'm you'll find it (laughs) if it comes to me later I'll uh, look it up or, uh, I'll remember mm. it. It's something. Oh man, it, it bugs me. But it's a really, it's a high, and they're like forty-five minute videos. Like he goes all in. It's an English speaking dude. It's really, really good. Uh, highest possible recommendation if you're like me when you watch some a movie about an event, you want to find out the real stuff. Uh, like for example, Glory last week. Uh, he has a video on that, or no? Is it maybe it was a different guy that did that one? I don't remember. <laughs> it's been a while. And oh, oh, by the way, if you're wondering, my voice sounds a little, little different. It's because I finally, guys, I won the award. I got the COVID award finally. <laughs> I got it later than most other people, but you know, I go back to work for two fucking weeks and I come home with COVID. Oof. So now I've been home for a week, oh, unpaid because I just started. Club COVID. <laughs> yep. Better late than never, right? Ha <laughs> ha. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> Nothing to joke about. But anyway, so yeah, uh, some trivia behind the scenes. There is some pretty cool, interesting stuff, I thought, before we get into the, the actual fact. Uh, but the gorilla suits used in the movie, in, in any movie up to this time, were obviously anatomically different from real gorillas. But this was the first time that, like, the, the effects of a gorilla on screen, this was the closest they ever got to realistic, realistic, thanks to Rick Baker. And the big reason that gorilla suits in movies, like Planet of the Apes and everything, for example, uh, were so unrealistic. I mean, A, they were humanoid apes, don't get me wrong, but they always had the actor's eyes visible. But gorilla skulls are totally differently shaped than humans, so it was always a different, you know, you had that dysmorphia of how the face looked on a real one as opposed to a man in a costume. You know, you go look at a gorilla costume on Amazon, cheap one. You know, it's got that flat, kind of a flat face, everything. That's how gorilla suits used to be. But Rick Baker had it completely redesigned to where they were so good that in a lot of the shots, you can't tell at first until you really look. And again, close-ups, you can tell in a split second, and especially in 1080p when you watch this movie. Like we say, that's kind of the curse of 80s movies when you watch them in HD these days. It's just the... the uh, 
the Vaseline on the lens or the seams of the makeup are a little bit more apparent or the texture. That's the big thing is, is like the, the texture of like fake skin as opposed to real skin is night and day, especially at that time. Of course, nowadays they got silicone that's so much more lifelike and everything for appliances, et cetera, et cetera. But this, the film, Rick Baker did such a good job on this that there's the director used the suits in conjunction with the live gorillas and it really worked. Uh, and this, there's, there's, a there's something to be said here. So this, this, is, this is tongue in cheek, but it is real. According to the, one of the costumers, the baby gorillas that you see in the movies that are interacting with Sigourney Weaver and the other cast were actually played by chimpanzees in blackface with fur hats to more closely resemble gorillas. So anytime you see a baby gorilla in this movie, it's a chimpanzee in blackface. Cancel them. Exactly. <laughs> Like I said, there's a joke there, but this is tongue-in-cheek. Please keep that in mind, everybody. But uh, the reason they had to do this, because if they actually did interact with baby gorillas, like the actual baby gorillas, it would have put everybody in serious danger from the adult gorillas, as we'll touch on that in a bit later. Uh, for a number of reasons, the crew had to keep their distance from the gorillas when they weren't filming. Uh, one day, they were act- when they were preparing to shoot a scene, one of the stuntmen got into the gorilla suit... And uh, pretty much, uh, he did a practice charge, and everybody like pandemonium on the set. Like they thought it was an actual gorilla. Totally scare everybody. And for a few minutes, everybody took everybody a few minutes to kind of calm down and realize it, and you know, then eventually laugh it off. But I'm sure some people didn't laugh it off. Uh, And one cool thing about the film, though, a lot of the shoot took place at the Karasoki Research Center, which is the actual place where Fosse worked and observed her gorillas. There are gorillas in the movie, that the same ones that she observed. Because she died like three years before this movie came out. In essence, a year and a half, roughly, before they started shooting. So she, you know, her grave was on set, basically. You know, she was, she was buried there. Uh, but the crew had to hike the set every day. And the, set, and the camp is 12,000 feet above sea level on an extinct volcano in Rwanda. Uh, the base camp was at 8,500 feet, so they had to climb up the other, uh, what is that, uh, 2,500 uh, feet, enduring temperatures below 40 degrees, carrying their gear on their backs and traveling through thick vegetation and mudslides. So it was an uh, arduous shoot, but again, the location, 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 uh, the cinematography, the actual gorilla footage in this is very, very well done. Again, is it worth watching the whole movie for? If you're interested in that, absolutely. If you have a passing interest in that, then no. Now look, sometimes as men... And women, our gorillas get a little unruly. And for that, I'm glad to say there's Manscaped. The Performance Package 4.0, the luxury grooming kit featuring my personal favorite product that Manscaped has ever done, the Weed Whacker 2.0 trimmer, and as well as the Lawnmower 4.0 in the Performance Package 4.0. The Lawnmower, it's got a skin scafe, skin scafe, skin safe electric trimmer. So if you're as thick as a gorilla or as bald as a eagle, I don't know. You guys don't even have hair. But hey, it works. Uh, the, the, the lawnmower works for you. And again, the star of the show, whether or not you get the performance package, I'm telling you, boys and girls, get the Weed Whacker 2.0. The ear and nose trimmer is the best ear trimmer I personally have ever used. And I've tried all sorts of ones from Bosch to uh, uh, Panasonic to Gillette. And the, ear, the Weed Whacker is the best nose and ear hair trimmer I've ever personally used. It's amazing. And you can, it's waterproof, water resistant. You can use it in the shower. 
Uh, and also with the performance package 4.0, you get the crop preserver, anti-chafing ball deodorant, crop reviver, ball spray toner, and the magic mat, which is just pieces of paper to shave your balls over so you can just throw it away and not make a big mess. Uh, and also you get the shed, the travel bag, and also boxers, which are honestly, they're, they say they're anti-chafing. My legs haven't chafed when I wear them. So uh, I guess they work. But enter the code REVISITED at checkout to save on your purchase, as well as garner free shipping from your our friends at Manscaped, sponsor of 80s Revisited. Uh, Sigourney, we were actually at war, an earpiece in one of her ears, so off camera, she could be coached by primatologists on set of like what to do as she approached the gorillas. And that pretty much led her for some of the shots you get where actual gorillas are... She's interacting with actual gorillas just like the real Diane Fossey did. In fact, uh, one time there was a close call. She tried to befriend a female gorilla, and then the 400-pound male threatened her. So Sigourney had to assume a submissive position, and the male gorilla passed her by, which is seen as in the movie when that happens. And that male gorilla was named Pablo, and that is one of the gorillas that, as I mentioned earlier, that Fossey had actually studied and named. Strangely enough, you know, we've had dueling asteroid movies. We've had dueling movies where the president is attacked at the White House. We've had dueling uh, volcano movies. Uh, we had, uh, as we did when we 80s revisited and went deep, we had dueling underwater horror movies. They, there was going to be dueling Diane Fossey movies at one point between Universal and Warner Brothers. They were both working on biopics of her at the same time, and they were both competing to try to gain access to the film site and film the real gorillas in Rwanda. But the Rwandan government refused to allow them until the two studios could come to an agreement. So basically said, you both can't come, but one of you can. So work something out. And they did. So they merged their two projects into this movie, which you'd think if, with two studios backing it, that's to be a good movie. And right. yeah, it's, it's fine. It's just not great. or It's not terrible. It's not great. Uh, the on-screen title is Gorillas in the Mist, the story of Diane Fossey. However, in the original mu movie poster, as well as a lot of the artwork and packaging for every home video release, the film was titled Gorillas in the Mist, the adventure of Diane Fossey, which uh, they should have kept the word story. It's not a really... I mean, it, it, is it an adventure? It's an adventure and a horror story and all sorts of stuff. So story, I think, works best. But the erroneous subtitle only appears on the box art, and all versions of the movie carry the appropriate and proper subtitle. Uh, Jessica Lange turned down the lead role due to the fact that she was pregnant, which absolutely you wouldn't want a pregnant woman hiking up, you know, a 12,000-foot mountain every day to film with live gorillas. Uh, but honestly, like, if you look at real pictures of Diane Fossey, like, Lange, obviously, she absolutely could have done it, but Sigourney Weaver looks just like, like, it's a very good match in terms of real world to film. Although Sigourney Weaver is definitely much more attractive than Diane Fossey because one is a primatologist and the other is an actor. Not that primatologists are not attractive, but an actor is an actor if you get my drift. That's all I'm saying. And at the 61st Annual Academy Awards, it was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Actress for Weaver, Best Writing, uh, in terms of screenplay based on material from another meeting, basically an adaptation. Uh, and at one Best Actress... And she won Best Actress for the uh, for the Golden Globe Awards, uh, and oh, the score did not win the Oscar. I had it backwards. It won the Golden Globe for score. The score was nominated, however, uh, and also it, the movie was nominated for Best Motion Picture Drama at the 46th Annual Golden Globes, but it did not win. But, you know, Sigourney got recognized for it, which is great. Uh, but again, this is not. It's it's kind of an Oscar baity movie because Fosse was just killed. It was in the public zeitgeist at the time. 
you know, so it was a it was a quick biopic made kind of like American Sniper, you know, which I think that movie's terrible, and I love Clint Eastwood. I think he's a f- phenomenal director, but I don't care for that movie at all. I think it's propaganda. Uh, that's just my opinion. The biopic, also, to, isn't it? it yeah. claims to be. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely. It hundred percent claims to be. But let's go talk to Jesse Ventura for the real story. Mm. If you want to talk, that's my thought on that. <laughs> Chris Kyle, you know, rest in peace. Thank you for your service. But uh, you know, you've a lot of the stuff he said has been proven to be false. So you, that's why you shouldn't have a picture of the Punisher skull with a sniper rifle on the back of your pickup truck. Uh, <laughs> a because if you actually read the Punisher comics, the Punisher hates that. And that's not, mm-hmm. you know, a cop with that, uh, any cop, you know, that, that thin blue line where they have the Punisher skull and then the, the thin blue line, that is completely inappropriate. And, the, and, the, and I'm not joking, the Punisher, the character himself addressed it in the comics and said, this is not for you. This is my symbol. You don't stand for this. So there you go. There's your woke comic book moment <laughs> on the podcast. But yeah, score-wise, again, this is not a terrible movie. It's not a great movie. I give it a five. I give it a five for the, the two performances I mentioned and the cinematography. And the music isn't bad. It's, to me, it's not memorable. And that, that is the key for a good score. It doesn't have to be... T- you know, The Halloween score is memorable. And it's just... You know, the Jaws score... Is is it simple? Yeah, but it's also by John Williams. So, I mean, you can't really say it's simple, mm. but it's just... Yeah, it's, it's that it's simple. That way, anyway, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, is it technically technically simple? No, it sounds simple. Yes, uh, but you get what I'm saying. You know, I don't remember a single note of the score for this film, uh, but I remember uh, I to pronounce correctly pronounce the gentleman's last name. Uh, John Malouis acting, his performance is incredibly memorable. Weaver did a good job, and like I said, the cinematography is fantastic. So that's what I took away from it, and that's good enough for it to be a five. You know, if the movie was actually had a little more substance, I probably would rate it higher. As it is, it's going to be a five for me, dog. Uh, in the real world, again, the wide release date was September thirtieth, nineteen eighty-eight. The day before, the Thursday before, September twenty-ninth, nineteen eighty-eight, NASA finally, after two years since the Challenger disaster resumed its space shuttle flights with the launch of STS-26. Space Shuttle Discovery took back to the skies. And that was a huge, that was huge. That was a huge thing as a kid. We were finally going back to space after, you know, every school kid in America watched the Challenger explode live on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I, I remember as a kid, like watching that, like the one after Challenger and just being like scared that it was not good, that it was going to explode, you know, because was, that was terrifying at the time. When it happened. Uh, and also, born that same day, Kevin Durant, American basketball player, and then died the day before on September 28th, Charles Adams. Now, that if you don't know who Charles Adams is, I'll give you a hint in case you ain't already guessed it. But his last name has two Ds, A-D-D-A-M-S. Yes, the American cartoonist born in 1912 who created the Adams Family. Mm. There you go. And that was the way it was, September 30th, 1988. <laughs> uh, now, again, well, we picked, I picked this movie because March is Women's History Month. And <laughs> there's a lot of, there's innumerable incredible women in the world. And there are many movies with about incredible women or with incredible performances by women. And again, in hindsight, I might have should have picked a, little, a movie about a more flattering portrayal or a more flattering real life example. 
but nevertheless, I've committed to this, so we're going to talk about the real life Diane Fossey right now. In case you don't know her, uh, aside from the movie and what you've gathered from the context clues that I've given over the course of this podcast, she was an American primatologist and conservationist, and I put conversa- conversationist, conservationist in quotes, because uh, we'll talk about that in a bit, known for undertaking an extensive study of mountain gorilla groups from 1966 until her murder in 1985. Uh, she studied, studied them daily in the mountain forest of Rwanda. Uh, she, she was encouraged to work there in the movie, and as in real life, by a paleoanthropologist named Louis Leakey. Uh, she published a book two years before her death called Gorillas in the Mist. It was her account of her scientific study of gorillas, at the research center where they filmed it and kind of her prior career. And as I said, uh, I'm pretty sure the book has no love story in it. It's totally added for the film, unnecessarily so, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, she was a leading primatologist, and this is awesome, I think. Uh, she was a member of the Trimates. And the Trimates is a legitimate nickname given to a group of female scientists who were all recruited by Lewis Leakey to study great apes in their natural environments. She's part of the Trimates. It was Diane Fossey, Jane Goodall, who studies chimpanzees, and Barut Galdikas. I don't know, again, if I'm mispronouncing that, I apologize. Uh, She studied orangutans. So those were the Trimates, the hottest new band out of uh, multiple different locations. Gorillas, chimpanzees, and orangutans. Uh, There's a poster on my wall. (laughs) Is it vintage, Jesse? Nah, that's a reprint. Yeah, me too. They're, they're, they're too expensive. Uh, but Fossey spent... Tw- that's, honestly, that's a shirt design. There has to be a shirt. Yeah. You know, Trimates World Tour, and it's got all three of them on there. Uh, Tongue-in-cheek, obviously. Uh, but she spent 20 years in Rwanda, where she supported conservation efforts, strongly opposed poaching and tourism in wildlife habitats. Pay attention to that phrase, that sentence. And made people more people acknowledge the sapience of gorillas. Now, hunting had been illegal in the National Park uh, in Rwanda since the 1920s, and the, but the law was rarely enforced by the park conservators, who were usually just bribed by poachers and paid a salary less than what Fossey's own African staff was paid to just turn a blind eye to all the poaching. On um, three occasions, Fossey wrote that she witnessed the aftermath of the capture of infant gorillas at the behest of the park conservators for zoos. Since gorillas will fight to the death, to protect their young, the kidnappings would often result in up to 10 adult gorilla, gorillas being murdered. Uh, now, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I think, I think that is badass. Uh, you know, if you try to take my child, you're going to have to kill me. Or, you know, you, I mean, I, I, it, like the Mel Gibson movie Ransom, like, give me back my kid. You're not going to fucking take him. I, you know, and, and when you get caught, you know, you... Uh, they're gonna have to keep me in handcuffs for the trial, you know. If anything ever, ha- if ever, ever that happened, because that, you know, I, I understand that mindset, uh, you know. So, and in the movie, it's it's a pretty heart wrenching scene, man. That's one of the best scenes in the movie when they have the poaching scene with the gorillas, where they're trying to get the baby. Although the baby gorilla in that scene is one of the it's 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 American sniper baby levels of fakeness. <laughs> in that scene, it kind of takes you out of the drama of it when like it shows the baby gorilla because it's it's. It's not good in the scenes where they're running with it. Uh, but it's a pretty brutal scene, man. And, like, we'll get more into some of the details of that in just a second. But, you know, you take a gorilla's kid, they're going to, you're going to have to kill them. You legitimately, and not just the parents, the whole freaking uh, group. You know, and I think that that is awesome. That is amazing. That is, you know, they protect their own. That's 
phenomenal. You know, sharks, some shark, shark species will eat their own kids. <laughs> you know, so uh, I think that's amazing. That's incredible. That's, you know, I re- we, we as humans, we should relate to that. So, you know, A, leave the baby gorillas alone, first off. But anyway, as a result of these gorilla deaths, multiple times, Fosse, she ended up financing patrols to destroy poachers' traps in the study area. And in four months, in just 1979... Her and four other African staffers destroyed nearly 1,000 poaching traps in the research area's vicinity. The National Park Guards, which had 24 staffers, did not eradicate any of those traps in the same time period. In the eastern portion of the park, not patrolled by Fosse, poachers there virtually eradicated all of the elephants for ivory and also killed more than a dozen gorillas. Now again, I'm, all, I'm a conservationist. I would say that. Uh, I believe in protecting the natural world, I think humans and our industry has a place in a designated place. And I think protecting national parks and all this kind of stuff, I personally believe that's incredibly important because humans are a cancer on the earth because we're constantly, you know, tearing down habitat, killing things, all in the name of quote-unquote progress when it's actually all in the name of quote-unquote money and all that kind of stuff. You know, if there was money in the natural world... There wouldn't be a single building built, but there's not. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, I am for progress, but I'm also, again, there, there is a simple way for both of these ideas to coexist, you know, but still constantly, you know, oh, the rainforests are disappearing. Yes, they are. And that's a, that's a shame. You know, thankfully, the algae in the oceans is producing enough oxygen to keep all the, the billions of people alive on this planet because we're kill, killing all the trees. You know, personally, one of my favorite, as a kid, you know, in, in Southern Louisiana, I enjoyed being in the woods, just walking in the woods. You know, that was one of the funnest and most incredible, peaceful things I ever experienced in my life. I, you know, I love the woods. It's one of my favorite biomes, so to speak, you know, and when, to see like the, and even, just in my lifetime, you know, we used to have a BMX track with these natural hills out in Walker, Louisiana, where me and my friends live. We'd ride our bikes to it. And then one day it was all flat. All the trees were gone. I understand, you know, not everything can be there, you know, but in the name of quote unquote progress, you know, too much of the natural world is being destroyed and not just being destroyed. It's being becoming an attraction. And that's a bad thing. And that's one thing I agree with Fossey on, which we'll get to in a little bit. But anyway, uh, here's like here's like a big event in the story of Diane Fossey, aside from her eventual murder, obviously. Uh, But sometime during the day on New Year's Eve, 1977, her favorite gorilla named Digit was killed by poachers. And as a sentry of study group four, he defended the group against six poachers and their dogs, one gorilla. So all you people, all you quote unquote, quote unquote is the word of the episode. So every time I say it, you got to, ah, like Pee Wee Herman, Pee Wee's Playhouse. Uh, this fucking gorilla fended off six humans and their dogs. So if you think you can beat up a gorilla, you can't. You're dead. <laughs> they will murder you. In fact, I uh, we went to the Memphis Zoo one time, which was one of the best zoos I've ever been to in my life. But I think, honestly, I think we caught it on a really good day. It was a cool morning during the week, and all the animals one. were out. It's an amazing zoo. Mm-hmm. And, uh... The gorillas were out, and we, the trainers were throwing the food to them. We were just talking, like, they said, do you ever go in there? Like, they were just like, no, you do not go into the gorilla enclosure. <laughs> you do not go in there. Uh, so you don't, you don't fuck with gorillas, man, or, or, or chimpanzees. They will rip off your face and eat it. And that's not just something 
fictional in Nope because that really happened multiple times. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's a, there's a, I might have mentioned this before on something else, but there was a great, Discovery used to have a great TV show called I'm a, I, want, I want to say it was called I'm Alive or I Am Alive. The downside is they used the Nickelback song <laughs> to, uh, for the intro, but it was a show about surviving animal attacks. And one of the scariest things I've ever heard in my life was a group of men who were attacked by chimpanzees in a reserve in a vehicle and how they brutally murdered one of the people and hauled them out of the vehicle. It was terrifying. I've, I've tried to find that like that interview that that show. It's like it's almost like non-existent on the internet anymore. So, but I know I didn't dream it because me and my friend Barry used to talk about that show all the time. How good it was! The, the stories it told were amazing. Bottom line is, don't mess with monkeys, man. You can't beat them. You seen a shaved chimpanzee? That's all muscle, bro. It ain't gonna. It, you're not gonna stop it. Uh, but anyway. Uh, our boy Digit here, he took five spear wounds in a ferocious self-defense in the, in, the, in, the, in the self-defense of his kids and managed to kill one of the poacher's dogs, allowing the other 13 members of his group to escape. So he saved the lives of all of his other gorilla family. They mm. killed Digit. I mean, five spear wounds was enough, unfortunately. They decapitated him. They cut off his hands for ashtrays. He was only a 12-year-old gorilla. Uh, his mutilated body was discovered by a research assistant, and uh, Fossey's group captured one of the killers, and he revealed the names of his five accomplices, three of whom were later in prison. So that's a good thing; they got they got in prison for it. But Fossey later described Digit's killing as "quote the saddest event in all of my years of sharing the daily lives of mountain gorillas." It uh, she plunged into depression after this. She isolated herself in her cabin becoming a chain smoker and consuming lots of alcohol, which they do show in the movie, but it's more so just, they just show her chain smoking all the time and coughing more. Uh, she devoted more of her attention after that point to preventing poaching and less on scientific publishing and research because there's there's two sides to Diane Fossey. And you, you basically have the pre-digit Diane Fossey, which is the research and the book, and then you have the post-digit killing, which is what she had, she created, quote, what is called active conservation. Now, Fossey's methods for this, which are somewhat portrayed in the movie, although very kind of just ha-ha-ha, glossy, but they included physical torture and psychological torture, kidnapping of local people and their children near her field, field site in Rwanda. She was reported to have captured and held Rwandans as this she, she suspected of poaching. She allegedly beat a poacher's testicles with stinging nettles. And writing in the Wall Street Journal in 2002, the journalist Tunku Varadarajan described Fossey at the end of her life as a colorful, controversial, and a quote, racist alcoholic who regarded her gorillas as better than the African people who lived around them. So, mm. she, like I said, you know, Never meet your heroes, so to speak. Now, again, you have to, we have to be able to look at her as a human being and praise her conservation efforts, her actual conservation efforts, but her methods for some of this absolutely are condemnable. Condemnable. And unfortunate. And they were not right. Now, I, under, I completely support stopping poaching, protecting wildlife. I support conservation. And that we should spend more time and money doing that for some species. Uh, species are disappearing all the time because of people. And we should be better than that. We think we rule the planet. We should act like rulers and not conquerors. 
we just nothing to conquer. But, uh, you know, so I understand her passion for protecting these animals. However, you cannot, the, the trick is, you know, I, I, as we talk about on the podcast, you know, people, people give us a one-star review for being woke. No, we're just, we're really just kind of talking. Well, I should say I, because again, I'm, I will never speak for Jesse's point of view, although we do tend to agree on most things. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we're simply just observing and making, you know, not assumptions, but like, hey, if, if people just want to be treated fair, what's wrong with that? And if that makes you woke, so be it. Because, again, being woke used to not be a bad word. You know, saving wildlife used to be a good thing. And it's, mm. you know, it's, it's, it, I believe it's never not a good thing. You know, these animals are incredible. Whether or not you agree with zoos and aquariums, you know, I believe they're teaching tools. And I understand the argument for these animals should not be imprisoned. But, you know, uh, there's, there's a neat, sometimes... Having some zoos increases awareness and thus increases conservation and protection. So, it's so you know Diane Fossey is a very slippery slope, so to speak, because you have to be able to you know acknowledge what she did that was good, but also like that she did go to, did she go too far? I think yes, hundred percent. And if you don't agree with me, that's your opinion. That's fine, but let's the the facts kind of. You know, oh, she, it was poachers. She was. It doesn't matter. You you cannot, you cannot become the evil that you're fighting. You know, uh, what I you know that's like it's basically like she valued the gorillas' lives more than a human life. And though I believe wholeheartedly in conservation, I don't necessarily hold the life of a human underneath the life of an animal. You know, uh, I would risk my life to save an animal, but I would never sacrifice a human life to save an animal. If that makes sense. Because, uh, you know, if you do something wrong, if you kill an animal, like in, as they depict in the movie, like our boy Digit, you know, happened to our boy Digit, well, then, you know, there, there are consequences, and the right path was followed for some of that because it led to the imprisonment of some of these poachers. Because poaching is despicable. Uh, and there, there, thank you for coming to my conservation TED talk. Uh, anyway, now let's get on to the murder mystery part of it, because this is the part that uh, is arguably the most interesting. Because it's the part that lingers, and it's, you know... But following the killing of a gorilla and the subsequent tensions, she was murdered in her cabin in a remote camp, in her remote camp in Rwanda. It was, her body was discovered December 27th, 1985. After her death, her entire staff was arrested, including a native Rwandan, Emmanuel... Relua, Re, I, my cold is making it really hard to pronounce this last name, so again, I apologize. Uh, Rowella Kana. I hope I got somewhere close to that. He was a tracker who had been fired from his job after he allegedly tried to kill Fossey with a machete, according wow. to the government's account of the trial. Uh, all were later released except him, and he was later found dead in prison, allegedly having hung himself. But if you watch the documentary, there's a lot more to that him than this little blurb that I adapted from Wikipedia states. Again, if this story interests you, watch the documentary on... National Ge Nat Geo on uh, Disney Plus. It's it goes into detail about all this much more than we do on this podcast because this is not the Diane Fossey podcast. We're talking about a movie and elaborating on the real life side. Uh, but Rwandan courts later tried and convicted Wayne McGuire in absentia for her murder. 
The alleged motive was that McGuire murdered Fosse in order to steal the manuscript of the sequel to her book, Gorillas in the Mist. At the trial, investigators said McGuire was not happy with his own research and wanted to use, quote, any dishonest means possible, end quote, to complete his work. And he returned to the U.S. in July of 1987 because no extradition treaty exists between the U.S. and Rwanda. And McGuire has never and will never return to Rwanda because if he does, he'll be arrested. And the penalty is death by shooting because they still believe that he did kill Diane Fossey. But again, if you watch the documentary, it's it, it's not that. It, it, it seems to me, my take on it is that it was it was somebody in alignment with the poachers and what she was doing was hurting their business. And the business, when you're in business, in business for killing things, killing one, you know, American woman in the jungles of Rwanda to maintain the money you're making from poaching and killing elephants and gorillas and selling their body parts and selling the kids to zoos outweighs that moral, that morality. That's just my take. So I believe we'll never find out who actually killed her. Uh, but again, that's just me. Now, I, and I agree with Fossey on this. She strongly opposes wildlife tourism. As gorillas are very susceptible to human diseases like the flu, they have limited immunity because they're isolated up on a mountaintop. She reported several cases in which gorillas died because of diseases spread by tourists. She also viewed tourism as an interference into their natural wildlife behavior. I think that's like chaos theory, right? Like you can't observe something without changing its behavior. Yeah, but get this. So get this. She, the actual Diane Fossey, opposed, strongly opposed wildlife tourism. As of 2016, the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund International promotes tourism, which they say helps to create a stable and sustainable local community dedicated to protecting the gorillas and their habitat. So the society mm. named after her is doing exactly what she did not want to happen. Well, because why? Cha-ching! Cha-ching! <laughs> that is true. Yeah, that is true. But you know, more eyes would, on the gorillas with tourism as a thing, especially you know, they don't want to kill them. Yeah, that, and that is one hundred percent true. And you know, that's something that is definitely open for discussion. But still, when you named your your foundation is doing what you didn't want that you what you something you didn't stand for, you know, it's like. Uh, it's, it's like the whole Bob Ross thing. Like Bob Ross, you know, his family gets nothing from anything you buy with Bob Ross on it. It's that corporation right. from that seedy couple that pretty much took Bob Ross and made him famous or promoted him and kept all the money. There's a good documentary on Netflix about that. If you want to watch uh, that, which I highly recommend. So don't ever buy a Bob Ross bobblehead or a Halloween costume or anything like that because it, it, not a penny goes to anybody related to Bob Ross. It's an old couple that are absolute dickhead business people, for lack of a better word. Anyway, and they're sitting on a fortune with all of his art, not selling it. So uh, anyway, uh, let me see, where are we at here? Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, yeah, uh, Fossey is, however, credited with reversing the downward trend in the mountain gorilla population. Uh, due to poaching, gorilla populations declined from 450 in 1960 to just 250 in 1981. But after Diane Fossey saw the final confirmed killing of a gorilla in 1983, and by the late 80s, the population had risen to 280 and continues to rise, and as of 1987... Uh, wait, hold on. I thought I had a number here. 
Okay, no, I don't have a number. I did not have a number for the current population, excuse me. Uh, but it continues to, to rise in her, uh, again, her research and the following and the publicity of her murder, more so in the movie, the subsequent movie after her murder, you know, is what spawned the guerrilla tourism industry. And between her death in, in uh, 85, wait, was it 85? Yeah. Uh, 80, I'm pretty sure I'm right on that, right? Yeah, 85. I remember. 85, yeah. Earlier. I was going back up to double check. Didn't want to misspeak. <laughs> uh, so between 85 and the 1994 Rwandan genocide, uh, the campsite, Karasoki, was directed by former students, some of who had opposed Diane Fossey and her methods of active conservation which I agree, agree with them opposing it. And during the genocide and subsequent period of insecurity, the camp was completely looted and destroyed. And today, there are only remnants, the only remnants left are some pieces of her cabin. However, as at the closing credits of the movie, she is buried there. There is a mark, a gravestone for her and Digit. And in 2019, Poppy, the last living gorilla that she studied, is believed to have died, according to the famed naturalist nonprofit organization and that in a very tight nutshell as best as i can make it is the real life story of gorillas in the mist so there's some good she did some good some of the methods were apprehensible but does the good outweigh the bad that's up for you to decide uh whatever did she do something great absolutely but there was a dark side to her and it's important that we recognize that uh not you know not you know not to not to beat the devil, you have to become a devil yourself, so to speak. But more so, you know, learn from it that, you know, don't go down that path to make a difference. Stay the course with your heart and your morals. And, you know, whether or not that wins the day, you did right, I guess is what I'm trying to say from my point of view. So, yeah, but Diane Fossey, regardless of that, a very, you know, at the start of her career, absolutely inspirational and a very amazing, uh, strong uh, strong woman, to quote South Park, uh, <laughs> but not facetiously in this regard uh, at all. So a very, uh, a very notable female in history for sure. So happy Women International Women's Month, everybody. Yep. Uh, like I said, uh, maybe I should have picked somebody a little more, a little better. But you know what? It's 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 good to look at these people who are revered by some, because that's a that is a problem with people today. A lot of people. We're all guilty of it. There's somebody who we look up to that. There are some things we might just let slide, you know. For example, for example, you know, I person most people think Michael Jackson molested children. Personally, I think a lot of that was I don't I don't think so. Something there's just something in my gut that says he was just an easy target. That's just me. And again, if he did, it's absolutely despicable. There's no justification, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, but I do keep you know I it still mars his legacy. Hmm. Which we talked about in the Moonwalker episode. Find out more on the uh, Moonwalker episode, yeah. Exactly. At uh, 80s Revisited. Uh, you know, and then uh, who, who's another? Like po- Politicians. You know, George Washington, founder of our country. You know, helped win the American Revolution. Slave owner. Abraham Lincoln, you know, he, he wrote, you know, he kept the nation together, reunited us after the Civil War, led the country through, through that. Many consider him the greatest president of all time. Not everything, if you look into a deep dive into Lincoln, not everything he did was quite so, you know, abolitionist, so to speak. Uh, and my favorite example, Ronald Reagan. Yep. Uh, a lot of people these days put Reagan on this pedestal. And when you do the research and actually research what Reagan did, 
there's there's a lot of bad there, you know, to where I don't consider him one of the greatest presidents of the United States. He now he was probably without a doubt the greatest orator, the greatest public speaker in terms of United States presidents. Without probably without a doubt. Some of his speeches are absolutely iconic, but you know what politicians are really good at? Giving speeches. Everything else, that's when the politics come in. You know. So, uh, but yeah, if you don't know all about Ronald, if you if you have Ronald Reagan on a pedestal, you might want to read, you know, Wikipedia and follow the rabbit hole through the cited sources on Wikipedia to get a better view of exactly how he shrunk the middle class and didn't expand it as a lot of really far right wing people want to want to believe, which is completely false. F Y I, and we talked about the AIDS crisis before, uh, with his total neglect of that, which is apprehensible. But again. First of all, you should never glorify politicians. And I'm on a, yes, I'm on a soapbox again. Politicians are not celebrities, people. They're hired officials that work for us. And, you, and, we, and they get too much credit for doing too little in this country. They get credit for sound bites about how they want to stop school shootings and all this other stuff and then do nothing about it. And you have multiple cases of this throughout recent history as far as earlier in this week with the tragedy in Nashville and all this other stuff. Politics is such a sham in this country and, and everywhere. You know, politics is politics. I'm not naive on that. But it's a, it's a damn shame that the number one cause of, child, of children's deaths in America is mm-hmm. fucking guns. Yep. It's not a disease that we don't have a cure for. It is something that we could fix tomorrow. And it is absolutely sickening. When you really think, when anybody with a heart, anybody with a kid, holds a weapon higher than the life of a child in any country, in any time, is despicable. All right, there we go. End of woke alert. All you NRA nuts who love the podcast until this episode, thanks for sticking around for 250 plus episodes. But uh, Really trigger him if he did an uh, 80s revisit on the Reagan administration. <laughs> it did occur well, in the 80s. Well, you know, <laughs> That's true. Well, the thing is, you know, there's, you know, uh, at the, you know, again, as a, as a kid, you know, well, let's touch on that a little bit because that's the fun, part of the fun of the podcast. As a kid, I loved Ronald Reagan. I wrote him. Ronald Reagan wrote me a letter back. You know, it was a typed letter with his signature. You know, he wrote me a letter back. You know, I idolized Ronald Reagan as a kid. I thought he was, you know, as a kid growing up in the South, I had Christopher Reeve, aka Superman. I had He Man. I had Luke Skywalker, Ronald Reagan. And Jesus, as a kid, you know, and Santa Claus, you know, in that uh, you know, and, you know, basically, you know, to be honest, you know, because I was talking to my parents about this the other day, like when you're when you're a kid, you know, because we're talking about like when do you teach your children about religion? And my personal opinion is, let them find it. That's my personal opinion, is, you know, educate them about different religions, like you know, well, we live in Utah now, and my my daughter will be aware of the Mormon cult, excuse me, religion. Uh, Wink, wink, uh, you know, and science, and all, and she'll, you know, I, I'm more than happy to talk to her about different religions and let her find her own path. Now, that doesn't mean I will let my daughter become a Scientologist. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, but that's that's the line I'm walking. You know, you have to walk with your kids. You have to teach them as best you can and pray for the best and hope that you did a good job. But uh, I forgot what's going. But you know, with but when you're a kid, you know, especially a kid in the '80s, you know, like with with. Because uh, there was, I watched an interesting video on YouTube to where when, when people do say that, like, oh, man, all those toy commercials and all the advertising and, like, just 
the vibe of the 80s was so different. It, it, it legitimately was because stuff that Reagan actually passed, this is one good thing he did, was how like cartoons and all that had to have an amount of advertising directed for children. That's why when our, the, the commercials during kid shows were all were so amazing. We didn't get commercials for, you know, Tonight on Nightline, the Marietta Strangler has been arrested, more at 11. You didn't get, you couldn't have that during kids' blocks. You had to have targeted advertising for children during kids' shows. And on YouTube, like on, my daughter does get that, you know, but for the most part, you know, advertising, it changed. They, then they made it to where you didn't have to do that after the 80s. I have to look this up. I, I'm trying to remember where I heard that at because it was a very interesting podcast about it. Hmm. Uh, maybe it was Halloweenies or something. There was somewhere. God, where did I, I? If I can remember it, I will bring it up and write it down so everybody can listen to it. And I can actually, I can research it more and talk more about it on a professional level. But, uh, you know, it was different, you know, and again, did Reagan do everything right? Absolutely not. No president ever has. Did he do some good for the country? Absolutely. The presidents need to be measured you know, equally on their, the good things and the bad things they did. And the only way we can actually do that, though, is when we can look back far enough away from it to see what it actually did. You know, Bill Clinton was, the Republicans thought he was going to ruin the economy. Clinton actually made a strong economy historically. When you look back, the economy under Clinton had a big boom. So, and again, if you, if you want to argue about it, do some research, 80svisit at gmail.com. I don't claim to be an economist ever. This is surface topical research <laughs> that I'm talking about here. So don't come at me for that. Uh, come at me or with things you, you actually want to talk a, about. Uh, full Reagan episode, 80s Revisited. Oh, yeah. That would be interesting. That, that's a good topic. It's just, there's, there's no movie to tie it into is the thing, you know? And yeah. except, uh, what's an 80s movie where they... Oh well, back to the we already did back to the future too. Still revisiting like the eighties in a way, you know. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good <laughs> idea. We, we can can work that around something because we've done non movie episodes movies before. Podcast. That's true. That's very true, Jesse. <laughs> the voice of reason on eighties business. Uh, but anyway, so we'll yeah, talk enough about of his acting career. <laughs> <laughs> the actor, ha! Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, back to enough of that. <laughs> the soapbox is gone. For now, I'm kicking it under the table. Anyway, back to the future this week. Uh, because I had COVID, I did get to uh, we'd adventure out and watch a movie. And also in playing a video game. And the game is not Resident Evil 4, which I got day one. But I haven't touched it. Because I've gotten hooked on a little game, came out a couple years ago, called Subnautica. And Subnautica is basically the underwater version of Stranded Deep, even though you go underwater in that game. Uh, the Forest all those kind of games, the survival games. And uh, I was just playing it in between, waiting for Resident Evil 4, and lo and behold, I got hooked. And now I'm obsessed with it. Base building, sub building, fighting off monsters, all while maintaining my food and water levels. That's so one of those games I, I uh, bought and just sits, like I haven't loaded it yet. Worth doing? If you like... Oh, absolutely. But again, oh, cool. no. With, with the you have the forest too, so I would not say play it over that. <laughs> okay. Because because some not, this is an that. old, it's an old game. It's I mean it's it's a couple years old. They already have a sequel out called Beyond Below Zero or, or something like that. Hmm. But it was free on PSN like a long time ago, and I, I always heard about it after I was playing Stranded Deep when I kept, kind of found that genre and fell in love with it. Uh, but those it's like like Stranded Deep, uh. Because I played Stranded Deep, like, these games are amazing. And I went on Reddit, like, what are games like Stranded Deep that are like this? I've never played games like this. And we're like, oh, you got to play The Forest and Subnautica. And I, I immediately went to The First Forest because it was on 
console, and I think Subnautica was too, but I didn't want to play two like water-based games like that back-to-back. -back. And of course, The Forest takes place in, you guessed it, a forest. So I uh, did The Forest, and then Subnautica was just kind of on the back burner, and then I had nothing to play, and I hit it up, and then uh, just became, you know, all those games kind of get, they, some of them grab you immediately, like The Forest does, with like the building aspect and everything, and the survival, and then other ones like that, like Subnautica, it took me like just a couple of casual plays, and then, then it clicks. You get to a point in the game where like, you kind of get the sub, pretty much. Once once you get the little mini sub or the the little sea scooter, I forget what it's called. You know, the little thing in movies where they hold on to. And it's basically just a little jet, a pod from the pod race in Star Wars Episode One, kind of looking thing. And you zoom in. Once you can kind of move and explore more, and the game kind of opens up a bit, then that's when it kind of clicks for me. And I've honestly just been playing the hell out of it. Just unlock the giant, there's this huge sub that you get. I mean, in the game, it's one of the biggest buildable vehicles I've ever seen in a game. And uh, the second I think that thing got built and dropped in the water, I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. But it does a, uh, the only bad thing about the game is that, you know, Stranded Deep was tense. When I got in the water, I was tense because there were sharks all over the place and they looked pretty realistic for a, a, a game made at that level. Uh, but in Subnautica, like the creatures that attack you and can hurt you, they're kind of cute. So it's not really scary. It's more, you get more scared about running out of oxygen, to be honest with you. Like I'm in this cave. Okay. I went left, then right. And in the big open room, I went down. So I got to go back up and then right, then left to get out. And that's where the tension and the scariness comes from for Subnautica. Hmm. Uh, cause the, the creatures that can kill you, they're not the leviathans are kind of creepy looking but like the sand sharks and these other things they're really kind of cute so it's like <laughs> you know it's i'm not scared of i'm not so much scared of the wildlife i'm you're more so scared of drowning which is a very real fear too so don't get me wrong but it's a great game if you like survival games like that it's absolutely fun it's gorgeous because you know it's underwater it's yeah. very relaxing it's a it's a you know, I don't, you're not rushed. You know, once you kind of get your, your food production where you need it to be and you kind of understand, <coughs> oh, these foods are good. These are the foods I need to eat, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you want to kind of get the hang of that aspect of the game, any of the game, survival games like this, then that's when it kind of clicks more and you're like, okay, I know what to do to live. Now I can explore. And once you kind of start exploring, that's when it, it really opens up and you want to build, you know, this amazing underwater habitat and all sorts of stuff. And it's just a really fun game. It's nothing groundbreaking so to speak, because it is, a, it is an existing... Maybe it wasn't... It, when it came out, it probably absolutely was. Mm -hmm. But now we have... Already, they have a part two. You have Stranded Deep. You have The Forest and The forest, Sons of the Forest. You know, so uh, I'm really not sure what, what the first game like this was, to be honest with you. But nevertheless, Subnautica is absolutely fun. I'm addicted. It's exploring. It's incredible. It gives you a real sense of wonder uh, when you're doing it. Like I said, it's just... The, the, the wildlife, it's very you know, PG 13 in terms of the creature design and everything. So there's nothing like scary, really too scary about it. Whereas in Stranded Deep, you're swimming all of a sudden you're, and there's a bull shark right behind you. Like, ah, ah! <laughs> you're, like, you're, you're legitimately scared or you're on a little four by four raft in the middle of the ocean and you hear, and your raft gets bumped. And like, like there are sharks in the water. Like it's a legitimate, like scare. Like it's, it's tension. The forest, you're building your base and you're like, I kind of, 
you, you look behind you, there's a dude peeking out from behind a tree like Michael Myers. You're like, ah, you're, you're like scared. You're like, okay, I got I'm building a fence right now. And you go like, you know, it uh, inspires some emotion. Subnautica, you know, Stranded Deep and The Forest both had fear. In Subnautica, there's no real fear except, like I said, for drowning for the most part. Right. But it, Subnautica has a much bigger sense of exploration. So there, yeah. it, it is like different in that regard. Uh, and it's, like I said, it's just calming. It's fun. I, I really enjoy it. Uh, I'm probably going to finish it before I even crank up the Resident Evil 4 remake, to be yeah. honest. So that's how much I'm, I'm invested in it. So uh, And also because I'm home from work, because I'm quarantined from with COVID. So it's the perfect <laughs> game to sit on the couch and, uh, you know, snack while playing and everything. And then uh, last night we did see Scream 6. Uh, thankfully it was not spoiled before. However, uh, if it was spoiled, it wouldn't have made a difference because I figured it out in the first 40, <laughs> 30 minutes of the movie. I'm not, and I'm not saying that as a humble brag or anything. Uh, Scream 5, la- uh, year before last, I thought it was great. It was probably my second favorite in the franchise, to be perfectly honest. And I love these movies because of the first time watching them, fi- trying to figure out who the killer is. That's the funnest part of a Scream movie, is the first time you watch one of them and like... Aha! And then, oh man, no way! Oh, this person's related to Sydney somehow. And then it's it's such a, it's like the Harry Potter franchise. Anytime in the Harry Potter movies, whenever there's a new professor, that's the villain. For like the first four <laughs> movies, and Every with Scream, time. for the first four movies, aside after the first one, oh hi, you know, oh the killer's motive is you killed my son. Or you killed, I'm your cousin, I'm your, I'm your lost brother, Sydney. so why should you be famous? I'm going to be infamous. You're my niece, Sydney, and you were famous because you got, you know, somebody tried to murder you, so now I'm going to murder people and make it look I was the new you. Just stupid. Like, they fall all in my, Scream 1, meta def, you know, a genre-defining horror film, still a lot of fun. Scream 2, it's okay. It's a fine follow-up. 3 and 4, absolute garbage. 5, I was like, okay, mm-hmm. this is new and fresh. It's different. They're, they're playing with expectations. They're doing a good job. Scream 6 falls right back into the same patterns. There's some great visuals, mm-hmm. some great kills. However, it's, it's probably, honestly, I think it's the most predictable Scream movie, which is not what you want one of them to be. You want them to do something different. I was hoping... Like I think the biggest hope a lot of people have of the series is that they just 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 take it supernatural finally, just make it an unstoppable. You know now it's like what, you know just just flip the script and make it almost a pair or just do the stab movies, do the movies within a movie, you know for real, just do something different. And I think Five did this one. It, it, it's in New York, so there's some great set pieces. There's some great moments, but the whole reveal at the end is is it's just like legit like. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio, that, that meme from uh, Once Upon a Time Highwood, snapping my fingers and pointing at the screen. Called it. It's, it's very, it was so easy to, to, to read this one, which was very unfortunate based on the strength, I think, of Five, which some people like Five, a lot of people, you know, it's kind of a 50-50 kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, so is it worth seeing? Yeah, absolutely. It's fine. It's a screen movie. I, I will watch any time a franchise horror film comes out, I will watch it. Be it the next scream, uh, excuse me, asterisk, unless it's related to ghosts, because the conjuring and paranormal activity, and uh, yeah, those two, those are the main offenders. Annabelle, they're garbage. I think they're not scary. 
I don't like them at all. And again, that's just my opinion. A lot of people obviously do because there's a whole conjuring universe. But I watch them and laugh. You know, <laughs> honestly, like even the, the jump scares are too predictable, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. However, you know, new scream, gonna see it. New saw, even probably won't see it at the theater, but I will eagerly watch it when it comes on VOD or anything like that, you know. So, but uh, any of the any of the big franchises, absolutely. I'm always, I don't care how bad they are. I like Jason Go Takes Manhattan, I think it's hilarious, it's fun. Is it good? No, but it's <laughs> damn fun. And Scream 6, it's. It's fine. It's fine. You know. It's it's. But it's, it's it. it unfortunately, it's it's good. It's great. 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 Yeah. And then nosedive at the reveal because it was like, this is so obvious. And and guess what? It, it <laughs> the same. They, they didn't even they didn't even change the trope. It's like oh, the killers have a relation to somebody killed in a previous one, mm. and that 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 and that's how I figured it out because. I'm thinking like, oh, they're establishing this, so maybe, just maybe, they won't do that. <laughs> but then a couple of things happen, you're like, they're totally doing this. I can't believe they're doing this again, hoping that they, I would be subverted at the end and know it, it played out exactly as predicted. It's like, oh, that's a blatant red hair. Oh, da-da-da, yes, extre uh, extraneous line of dialogue at the last second. I'm like, that's a red herring. That makes no sense. And sure enough, <laughs> red herring. But uh, again, absolutely worth seeing. Don't get me wrong. It's a, again, it's it's fine. It's just I was disappointed at the ending and the reveal because I was expecting, you know, come on now. Every, it's it's a, it's like Shyamalan. Like ew, who's the killers in this one? You know, make it. Nobody's killing or It's all in, you know, do, you, it's time to do something different with this franchise because it's it's become exactly the meta-ness that it was calling out which honestly it was in the first film as well it was a homage to halloween and the horror genre to be perfectly honest and mm -hmm. all the ones follow that they always point but they they point it out in the movie and that's fine that's kind of that's more of the trope of scream is that over the course of the movie they're going to point out the rules for this movie because it's part this is the third in a trilogy this is what happens in trilogies dude and what and, <laughs> and by <coughs> excuse me and it's so funny because they kill Randy in part two and then to maintain the trope of telling you what happens in part three and four, they have videotapes of Randy. In case I die, I made, in case the killer comes back. So theoretically, there should be a video of Randy in every single one because right. he was so overprepared. Franchises never make it to 13, but this is the 13th time, Sid. You got to listen to me. And then Randy's looking <laughs> like he's you know, much older than he ever was before he was murdered by that time, you know. And of course, it's all tongue in cheek and meant to be poke fun at it. Because if you can't poke fun at the things you love, then you don't love them for real. Mm. But anyway, it's fine. It's, it's fine. I was just. I bottom line is it's maybe the third or fourth best one to me. Uh, no, it's it's ever the fourth one, one five two, and then maybe this one. The visual. The visuals are fantastic in this film, uh, which is what's really great about one of the great things about it. But anyway, that was all. That was it for me. Since we're actually recording weekly again, knock on wood, to see how long that lasts yeah. uh, before something. But uh, anyway, Jesse, it's been a week. But have you played, watched, listened, done anything of note? Still making my way through Sons of the Forest. Um, ah, it's it's a strange right? game. Yeah, still doing co-op. It's just without looking up spoilers to find things. I just you're just supposed to stumble upon them. I mean, that's how mm -hmm. real life is, I guess. But, you know, there's no science mm -hmm. saying here's the thing you need. 
But at the same time, in real life, if I didn't have a shovel in my hand, I would use my hands. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so, yeah, just trying to... F- that's our current thing is like a shovel's a big part of the game and we just haven't stumbled across it yet. And uh, it's the matter of like... It could be 20 feet from our camp and we just haven't gone to that particular spot. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 100%. So um, I did look up some construction tips just because that's more stuff they don't tell you how to do. And because we're on our second run because we started the first run and the longer you take in it, the the tougher it gets. And we cool. had nothing by like day 10 and the last run and like these just the worst guys are coming at us and just destroying us. I was like, this oh, can't wow. be the case. But now we've redone <laughs> it, and we found out how to defend the base, how to set up particular things. Um, and so we're doing that. And then now, though, it's like, oh, there's better ways to do this. So I think uh-huh. uh, we're playing like once a week, so it's pretty slow going. Um, but our next thing is to move camps and to build a better base. Um, you start off the game with a, a partner, uh, a, a NPC. Mm-hmm. And uh, he died last time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so many people who play the game keep that guy forever because he's just there to help you. Like if you need something fetched, great. But in our game, he uh, he was not where he was supposed <laughs> to be. He has perished. So <laughs> uh, so sad. And the people who are playing know who I'm talking about. His name is yeah, Kelvin. Yeah. Oh, Kelly. Yep. <laughs> But yeah, so it's going along. We'll see. Um, yeah, we'll see see what we do. There's there's uh well, I'm not going to spoil anything. We're we're going along. I'll gotcha. say this: we went really deep underground and found things. Mm. <laughs> uh, was, if it's like the first one, I know I have an idea of what you may have found. Yeah, similar yeah. maybe if it, depending if it follows that same storyline as yeah. to what the forest actually is. Mm. But, but yeah, those games are very much like that to where like, like even in, even in Stranded Deep, like and I, there was a basic item I had to go like, I had no idea how to make it, and I went on like, okay, I've looked where where do I find this? I'm like, oh no, you have to make it. Like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so they all all these games like this do have like same thing with Subnautica, the original Forest. Like, there's like a learning curve, or like, like there's some items that like, the sooner you get them, the better the experience is, but. Uh, like with the first forest and with Subnautica, you have to scan pieces in Subnautica to like find enough pieces of the sub to create the blueprint to make the little sub so you can scoot around faster or to breathe underwater longer. But some of these pieces are only at certain locations and you're literally in an ocean. Yeah. Just like you're literally in a forest. So, I, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of the MO for these kind of games like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it Typically, though, usually if it's something really important, like you'll have like a, a note or a story fragment to like lead you like... Yeah. I had a camp to the northeast, find me, or, you know, like, to at least give you a a starting direction or something, usually. Uh, But having not played... It's also an early access still, right, or alpha or whatever, so maybe it's... You know, all that might be fine-tuned for, like, actual release, but usually there's... they For anything that's a necessity, that's when... In, in these kind of games, when when you're, you're, you're not getting anything new, that's when, like, okay, time to follow the story. This kind of thing. Although some... Have it to where like you know you find like a a knife early like in the, I think the first four is like I found I stumbled across a knife and I, I think it might have been like something that was there was some tool it might not have been the knife there was some they tool that I found a lot. in my exploration 
Well, in the first start one, with a lighter, you start it was with early. an axe and all that stuff. Oh, wow. But for example, there's this one path, like there's a bunch of stuff on your GPS indicating go visit these things. And mm. so we're visiting these things and uh, visit it like in the first game. Several weeks go by and then we're just happen to be walking back along that path. And 20 feet from that visited spot, there's an axe upgrade. <laughs> like, why didn't we see this before? This is like the yeah. first spot we went to. We could have an up- axe upgrade. If only we had walked 20 feet away from it, but we mm. didn't. So that's what I'm wondering. Like, I'm wondering, you know, leaning on a tree next to our camp is something like a shovel, you know? Yep. We'll find it eventually somehow. <laughs> yeah, but I, mean, I, like, I love, like, every one of those these survival type games I've played, I've absolutely loved and just gotten, like, completely obsessed with, like, you know, building my base to my exact specifications and mm-hmm. the perfect defenses and, you know, food stockpiles, water sources. Like, that's like, I love, that's the aspect I just love about them. Yeah. Well, it's a shame like, oh, that I have... you can't play Valheim because it's, uh, that's one of my favorite survivals. Mm-hmm. And that's on Steam, right? You said, I think we talked yeah, about Yeah, it's last still time, an early right? access. Uh, it's on Steam and it's on Xbox. So it's probably never coming to PlayStation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, it's still early release right now. They still have... Um, they, that game's full of different uh, areas, like uh, there's a forest, there's a swamp, and so on. And there's still two of them that they're still developing. Cool. Uh, so uh, Biomes, they call them. Two more biomes they're developing before... But I believe before they go full release, so... But yeah, because that's so, what they call them in Subnautica too, different biomes. So, uh, okay, yeah, along the same path then. Absolutely, yeah. which makes it interesting to me because Subnautica is awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, anything else? No, no, that's just uh, working. Sons of the Forest. <laughs> yeah, which is work one day a week, going through that, and then everything else is like, you know, finding the time to do other things like that. Busy week. I hear you. Busy week. I hear you. Uh, no new emails this week. Uh, however, if you would like to send an email, tell us your favorite and worst memory of Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. at 80srevisited at gmail.com. Of course, you can find us on Facebook, 80s Revisited Podcast, on Instagram, 80s underscore revisited. Check out our friends far and away. Uh, John with his Cajun tour review just posted one with the Robocop NECA toy, which uh, John, I, I got, uh, my wife gave me the Ed 209 one, like for our anniversary, like four years ago or a couple years ago mm. and uh, I also got the Robocop one and that figure is awesome John does a great job of action figure reviews and everything and of course always props to the Doom Slayer TCW Wrestling baby our good friend uh, <laughs> I always said John for some reason uh, Ben in, in Tasmania he's in Australia this past week the lucky bastard with his fiance and they look like they're having a great time Japan is like the number one place yeah, that I want to visit Australia <laughs> I was like, oh, huh? Tasmania. No. Whoops. Well, you Wait, said they're in Australia said... this week. I was like, <laughs> oh, 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 whoops. No, they're Shit. in Japan. <laughs> yeah. Take it back. I take it back. It was dumb. Ben and Cody are in Japan. I'm, I'm not sure they still are. I think they, they might be. It's, it's already good. tomorrow and over on that side of the world, so sure. I don't know. <laughs> they're living in the future, man. Mm. But uh, some great picks. Uh, some play, Austra- uh, I do want to go to Australia as well. <laughs> yeah. But I, uh, Japan is the number one place that I want to go uh, visit that I haven't visited. In terms of outside the U.S., number one, want to go there so bad. If I ever won the lottery, and once Violet's old enough, that's where we're going. 
and then we'll swing right down to Australia and Tasmania. There you go. So getting over Australia that ocean was, was, is the big part. Yes, yeah, that's, that's the that's the subnautica part. That's literally the plot of subnautica. So. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway. Uh, as always, leave a review, whether it's one stars or five. Be honest. And if you, all we ask is that if you leave a review, leave more than a sentence. Explain your position. Let us know how we're doing, what we can do better, what we do bad. Let's just talk about it. But remember, you're, you're commenting on something that's a recorded thing. So if you say something wrong, we can call you out on it because we got the receipts. Uh, next week, I don't know. I don't know what we're doing next week. <laughs> so <laughs> stay tuned for the surprise. Yep. But until then, I will hopefully remain... Trey Harris. Jesse Sedgley. Cowabunga! Cowabunga!